Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. If you want to find out more about us, we have a website at www.adogs.info. We actually are a very simple organisation. We have two main objectives. One is to defend and promote public education and the other is to also promote the idea of freedom of religion and freedom of church from state, religion from the state. Uh, Because we are confronted in the Western world where we weren't for many years with the uh, giving of public money to private religious schools and these undermine and this situation undermines both our public education system and our freedom of religion. So we have a press release, 7.32, on our website at www.adogs.info and this is what it's about. Freedom of religion. Are some more worthy of freedom than others? I'm not sure who said it, but somebody important said, I think it was Montesquieu, a nation can lose its freedom in a day but not wake up to the loss for a century. Now, Australia lost its right to religious freedom in 1981. But in 1917, that's, that's last year, 1917, less than a century after the event of 1981, some people in Australia are waking up to the implications of this terrible loss. The dog's case... That was a case in which this organisation took the Commonwealth and the religious schools to court on Section 116 of the Constitution. That case, when we went to that court, we placed the High Court on trial in relation to separation of religion from the state and genuine freedom of and from religion, which we believed is, and still do believe, is contained in Section 116 of the Australian Constitution. Now, with the exception of Justice Lionel Murphy and his dissent, the rest of the judges failed dismally. And the ever-increasing entanglement of the Australian polity with religion, which has been boosted by billions of taxpayer dollars for religious enterprises, has compounded without serious questioning, excepting by us, ever since. The health of the body politic 
our legal processes and above all the well-being of our public education system have suffered grievously as a result. Australia has sowed the winds of religious privilege and now we're reaping the whirlwinds of religious discrimination. In the last few years, however, stimulated by the school chaplaincy cases in the High Court and the same-sex marriage plebiscite, questions are being asked about the cosy, very cosy relationship between wealthy, aggressive and discriminatory religious organisations and the state. The basic questions are finally being asked. And this is 1917, not, uh, sorry, this is 2017, not 2081, which I think is the good news for Australia. These are the questions that people are being, are asking, and Robert's going to tell you about Jane Carroll and other people who are asking these questions. What right do religious groups have to be exempt from discrimination legislation when they take public funding? Billions and billions of dollars of it. What has happened to our mythical separation of church and state, and why cannot we enjoy freedom from as well as freedom of religion? This freedom, of course, is what the dogs were fighting for in 1981. Some politicians in the Reason Party and the Greens are getting the message, and that, I suspect, is why they're getting the votes. Before the 2016 election, the Greens promised to remove religious exemptions to discrimination law for religious schools. Religious schools, however, are currently exempt from federal discrimination law in relation to employment and provision of education in accordance with their beliefs, and similar exemptions exist in state discrimination laws. So these heavily subsidised and in many cases overfunded schools are determined to retain their privileged status quo in relation to religious privilege as opposed to religious freedom. The two are not necessarily the same, of course. The National Catholic Education Commission has recently released its pre-budget submission which reiterated the importance of religious freedom to be reflected in the school's teaching, employment and enrolment practices. Well, their religious freedom might be discrimination, religious discrimination, and we know it is against a lot of other people. It noted the passage of same-sex marriage legislation and said that religious freedom had to be upheld so that Catholic schools could teach and foster a school environment that reflects the mission and identity of the Catholic school, of the Catholic church, I'm sorry. But taxpayer dollars were not left out of the religious liberty discussion and I assure you, listeners, they very rarely are. In its 2018 budget submission, the National Catholic Education Commission also asks for a further $1.1 billion. but it's just a further $1.1 billion on top of the 13 to transition to the Gonski 2.0 funding package over 10 years rather than six. According to the National Catholic Education Commission in Canberra, the school's reform that's the Gonski so-called 2.0 reform, allows overfunded independent schools a 10-year transition period before they reach their allocation of federal funding. So, of course, nothing's going to happen. They'll still remain overfunded and get more money. 
Now, as we've referred to in previous uh, press releases and on this program, uh, the Catholic Education Commission has been jumping up and down about what it thinks is going to happen. And what it thinks is going to happen is that Simon Birmingham and others are going to place more controls over the way uh, they allocate their funding because the way they've allocated their funding over the last 50 years has actually been a national scandal and has led to great inequalities within their own system as well as great inequalities throughout the Australian society. But uh, the Education Minister, Simon Birmingham, is amazed about this because he says, this is a scare campaign, I'm giving you another $300 billion just next year, million next year alone, and we're giving you $3.5 billion over the next decade. So uh, the Labor Party, of course, uh, are going to give them even more. Plibersec has recommitted Labor to restore every dollar that might be cut by the federal government from projected funding growth. And she says that she's going to give education $17 billion over 10 years. Now, as the dogs have always said, if you let the religious camel into the taxpayer's tent, they'll never be satisfied. And haven't we been proved right? Nevertheless... Fueled by their historical fear of the old Catholic vote, which apparently is greater than their fear of the Green vote, and we know that the Green vote is rising, particularly in the inner city areas, the Labor... Sorry, Sorry, Jen, I'm just going to stop you there because I absolutely think you're right about saying that. But I'm going to add something which I think is deeply important, and if there's any politicians listening, listen to this now. The one thing that the marriage plebiscite vote showed... Vote, yeah, plebiscite survey, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Whatever it showed was that whether you were a Catholic or a Protestant or a religious person of any sort, that did not determine the way you voted on that particular issue. In fact, you can talk about the Greens and you can talk about the religious vote as these separate and perhaps even antagonistic things in policy sense, but from the point of view of the people... They are not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. It's not progressive or religious. There are many religious progressives, as you know yourself, and there are many conservative atheists. Um, those, these politicians have been hoodwinked by various lobby groups, particularly religious lobby groups, saying that if the bishops say this, you better watch out. Well, the bishops said lots of things. The bishops tried to get rid of, um, tried to get rid of John Alexander up in city. It didn't work. Mm. The bishops tried to get rid of the Greens parties here in Melbourne. That didn't work. The bishops said, "Don't vote, so that same sex well, vote, so that same sex marriage people cannot be married and cannot be equal." And that didn't happen either. The, the bishops power... tried to tell the ladies not to take pills in their bedrooms, dear, and that didn't work either. And it's continually not working again and again. So, if you're a politician out there listening, don't think that you've got the Greens or the religious people. It's it's just not that simple anymore. So I just thought I'd point that out because this is one of the fundamental shifts, uh, perhaps over the time that dogs have been around since the 60s, 60s. This is one of the fundamental shifts. The great voting blocks that the DLP back in the 60s um, sort of subscribed to, the great religious voting block is now Bernardi. The great religious voting block... Not even him... Yeah. Is, is, is partly, but it, it, it's not there as a political force in any way near it. And once, 
And, and once the, 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 the wrap-up comes from Pell's trial and various other things from the Royal Commission, it will be even less. The voice, of, the voice of religious leaders speaking from the pulpit, telling people what to do in a political sphere, has gone. And as soon as politicians work that out, the happier we're all going to be. Sorry to interrupt you, Jane. Yes, I, I find this very, very interesting um, because, as you know, I grew up in the time when, when the DLP was, uh, the tail was wagging the dog. Oh. And um, uh, there's, there's memories, of course, very bad memories of what was done to um, people within the Labor Party over the years, good people. But uh, as dogs have always said, as I, I'll repeat this again, if you let the religious camel into the taxpayer's tent, they will never be satisfied. Nevertheless, the, the Labor Party are still fuelled, I believe, Robert, by their historical fear of the old Catholic vote. Yes. Oh, no, yes. Oh, they are afraid. I do not disagree. The plebiscites of this world are terrified of it. But what I am saying is that Plibersec, wake up, it's a shimmerer. Yes, they might be surrounding you, telling you you have this power, but really, really they don't. Yes, well, she's um, being influenced by people from her youth, I would think. She's mm. cringing before the church's lobbyists. And we read in The Guardian of Sunday, January the 7th, that Tanya Plibersec, said that Labor has no plans to change the law allowing religious schools to fire gay teachers in spite of the fact that there's considerable evidence that they have both done so and they intend to do so in the future. So what she said is really very interesting, so I'll go into this in greater detail now. Asked about the call for religious schools' ability to retain a power to sack such teachers, Plibersec told reporters in Sydney, we're not proposing to change any of the current exemptions for Catholic schools. Notice she, she just talks about Catholic schools. What I would say, this is Plibersec speaking, is that most Catholic schools are very thoughtful about keeping the very best staff. I don't expect to see a spate of people sacked because of their sexuality. Now, she says this in spite of the fact that during the marriage law postal survey campaign, the Catholic Church threatened to sack gay teachers, nurses and other staff if they engaged in civil same-sex marriages or weddings in breach of the church doctrine. And what has been most interesting to the dogs about this whole matter is how it has become blatantly obvious through the... um, the the child sexual abuse matters and also through this matter that it is the church men, the religious men who still run the schools. It's not even the bureaucrats. At the top of the hierarchy is always the bishop and again and again it has come out that it has been the priests who did exactly what they liked with small children in their schools because they regarded them as their schools whatever the principals and teachers and nuns and others did or said. Uh, And we tried to prove this back in 1981 in the High Court and they uh, swore black and blue that the religious people had very little to do with the running of the schools at all. So that's just by the by. But I, I found that very interesting indeed. Now, the coalition government 
the, like the Labor government, is also caving into the religious lobbyist pressure at the moment. After all, they have long since filched the Conservative Catholic vote from the Labor Party anyway. In November, during the marriage equality debate, the Turnbull government asked the former Attorney-General, for example, Philip Ruddock, to head a, a snap review out of, out of the blue to look at religious freedom in Australia. Why Philip Ruddock? Why not somebody of the calibre of um, Helen Irving or other people, lawyers in Sydney and well, Melbourne University? No, Philip Ruddock. Yeah, look, I can. A good Anglican, a very nice man. But oh, it, I, don't, I don't, I don't care. I mean, it's, it's a waste of tax. I'll tell you why, because there was a report commissioned. There, there, there was there, there was a report commissioned into religious liberty and religious freedom in Australia, commissioned at the end of 2016. The report had a finding. The finding was on the, the relevant minister's desk on August the first, 2017. Well, why can't we look at that? Well, exactly. It, it's been done. There, there was actually one done five years previously by the um, Human Rights Commission on, oh, on, on religious freedom. And there was one done in 2000 before that. So there's been, four, there's been three of them done and completed in the last 15 years. The last one is sitting on the minister's desk as of August the 1st last year. No one's looked at it. There's been no report. It hasn't been released. Why are they having another one? Complete waste of everyone's time. Absolute complete waste of everyone's time. Well, why isn't this in the hands of the Human Rights Commission anyway? As, uh, well, it was. Yeah. I can't They understand. did one in 2007-2008, and they concluded that from the submissions that there had been a deliberate combined effort from religious lobbyists to pervert the review itself because all of the submissions, many, a thousand of them, actually basically came in the same font with the same typeface and the same words. Well, they want, well, they want this also to be... Um, uh, the, the public aren't allowed to look at the yeah. submissions. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of these people are actually running scared. Yeah. By and the I way... Find, by I find the way, this actually rather unchristian. If you're a Christian, oh. then you, you take the slings and the arrows as Christ did. No, people no, will disagree with no, you. No, Jane, no, Jane. The reason that it's not being available to the public in submission is on national security grounds. <laughs> they're, using, they're using the same exceptions that Dutton uses so that we don't find out what's going on on, on, on offshore processing. Oh. Of, of, they, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, they're saying, no, you can't say it. It's um, national security <laughs> because they're the only provisions that have ever been used to make submissions to an inquiry public. So it has to be national security because there is no other reason to have submissions public. Or to, 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 sorry, to, to have, have submissions private. It's extraordinary. As a Christian, I find this very, very sad indeed that uh, people who profess to be Christians are too frightened to let what they have to say on this issue, whether you agree or disagree with it, um, out there in the public and to take the slings and arrows of people who may disagree with them. See, in fact, it's I think a, that's very sad. In fact, you know, it's also undemocratic. That's right, you know, saints and martyrs. That's, that, that's how you make them, isn't it? Uh, yes. Anyway, look, we, we, here at the Dogs we, we discuss separation of religion, the state and education policy. We, if, you, uh, if, if, if you want to have a discussion about doctrinal issues, um, there's a place available every Sunday. Um, no, and, and, and I'm not being silly because we really can't discuss that in any detail, but I do agree, Jean, that you know, people who purport to be Christian in the public sphere doing things like this, to me, doesn't make sense either. And I can't. I, I talk about that from the outside, and I know you talk about it from the inside. Oh, well, 
I, I think that you just go back and, and look at what Christ said to the Pharisees. That, that's all in this matter, and I find it very sad indeed. Oh, I, I, I don't mm. know. What, what, what did Christ say? We'll, have, we'll, we'll, finish. well, he called them whited sepulchres, oh, okay. hypocrites, yes. And, oh. of course, they killed him for his efforts. But um, that's another story and a very powerful one it is too. Very good. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about public education. Indeed we are. You're listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. Um, on, on the 3CR website, that's uh, 3cr.org.au and, of course, our website, which is www.adogs.info. Um, we'll return after these messages and a bit of music. Start the year with a song, or many songs, at the Singers' Festival at Abbotsford Convent, January 12 to 14, with Jimena Abarca, Lamine Sonko, Beat Lehman, Steve Turner, and heaps more singers. Go to boite.com.au. The Boit is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. That was David Kinsella on the harpsichord. Or was a friend of mine used to say the harpsichord? Um, the harpsichord, yeah, Eloquence was the CD, and of course that was a prelude there. Just, just a prelude to what I'm about to tell you now, which is good old economic rationalism. Yes, often sometimes you come to the dogs to get financial advice about which school to send your child to. But um, the whole question of, of what we're talking about in terms of supporting the state education system in Australia and I'm going to say it, defunding defunding the private education system in Australia by taking away their taxpayer subsidies makes economic sense, according to Deloitte Access Economics. 
Yes, no. Remember, remember Deloitte? They they do all the dodgy auditing. They were the ones that said the subprime sort of thing in 2008 did, didn't exist because it couldn't have existed because they didn't find it. But anyway, they're still around mate, doing businessy stuff and economic-y stuff and reporting to people. Federal they're still go- able to actually say the obvious, mm. state the obvious. Yeah, like, well, I think we can trust them with that. Because <laughs> the report by Deloitte Access Economics to the federal government has found that increasing student achievement in Australia will have significant individual and economy-wide benefits. It said the central issue for governments is addressing disadvantage in education and that school funding must be sufficient to overcome educational disadvantage associated with low socioeconomic families and communities. So that's economic street. What does that mean? Is that you've got a whole bunch of rich kids that get in real good education because like, they get money from their parents and the taxpayers and they're good. Um, they're fine. In fact, if you keep throwing money at them, you're wasting it because they ain't going to get any smarter. They ain't going to get any better. They've got all the opportunities because they've got their $14,000 a year in high school and that's about all you can get out of them. Smart kids will be smart. Dumb kids will be dumb. Lazy kids will be lazy. Industrious kids will be industrious. You can support them as individuals in a private school environment. Go for your life. Just not my business. Not my business to fund it. It's not my business to tell you what you go on about. And certainly, quite frankly, going back to Tanya Plibersek and Catholic schools and sacking gay teachers, if a Catholic school was funded by the parents and the churches themselves and they all subscribed to that particular religious viewpoint and did not demand from me any money, quite frankly, I think they should be able to do what they like. Mm. I think various people who have various religious tenets, none of which I personally believe in, but that's not the point, I would defend their right to believe in it and and to follow their own particular and peculiar religious tenets. I've got no problem with that. I'm just not going to pay for it. As soon as I'm not paying for it, it's not my business. There's the law of the land. Yeah, if they break the law of the land, I'm not very happy about that. So if they go around saying canon law is more important than common law, then I disagree with that. Or Sharia law is more important than common law, I I disagree with that. But if they're inside the law, they can do what they like within their religious precepts if I'm not paying for it. Anyway, back to Deloitte's. They're saying there's a whole bunch of disadvantaged kids in Australia that are not getting educated well and it's hurting the economy. Very, very simple. So this, this Deloitte's access is going to say that you have to address disadvantage because in Australia, I'm going to say it, because I always say it and it shocks me, how rich your parents are determines how good an education you get. How rich your parents are determines how much in terms of resources is allocated to your education. <coughs> and it's not an inverse proportion. No, 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 no. No, because we fund private schools. So in Australia, how well you are educated is directly correlated with how rich your parents are. Now that in itself is disgusting. That in itself is just morally reprehensible. That in itself is uncivilised. But that in itself is also economic stupidity, which is what Deloitte's are saying. Now in this study, which is what they reported to the government, they found that increasing student achievement increases education attainment in year 12 and beyond school and increases wages and likelihood of employment. It also leads to productive workforce and increased economic growth. Hurrah! I mean, this all makes sense. Get a good education, chances are you're more likely to get a good job and contribute, either as an artist or as, a, or as an office worker or as a programmer or whatever it is. But the better your education, the better your grounding, the more likely you are to be productive. Oh, by the way, they didn't say this, but it also keeps you out of jail. Oh, yeah, keeps you out of jail. Doesn't guarantee keeping out of jail, <laughs> but it does, it does really up, up your ante. You've got a good education, a lot, lot less chance you're going to jail. 
Now to quote from their report, back to Deloitte's Access Economics, the level and quality of education of a country's labour force has been consistently demonstrated as a driver for economic growth. A well-educated workforce will be more productive, will be more innovative, and will better utilise other factors of production at its disposal. Sounds a bit Marxist, doesn't it, Mum? Factors of production, this is, all, this is all very interesting, Deloitte's. Anyway, they go on to say, at the individual level, the benefits of education are reflected in higher wages, as workers are rewarded with greater productivity. At an aggregate level, society benefits through greater skills of innovation, social cohesion, tax revenues, and other positive spillovers. Now, in this analysis of Deloitte's, the effects of increasing student achievement at an individual level, the, the report found that a 1% increase in mathematics score will increase the likelihood of obtaining a year 12 qualification by 0.15% and increase wages by 0.09%, which is about a dollar a day. Increasing the chances of obtaining a university degree by 0.54% and the chances of being employed by 0.07%. Given the wage benefits associated with further study, combining the education attainments indicate a 1% increase in student achievement increases wages by about 2 bucks a day. Where have they got these statistics from? Children and their, and their abilities and their future economic use to the country is being put into, into percentages and decimals. Certainly. And in fact, I don't know why they're talking about 1%. I mean, by the way, we're talking about 1%. This is, this is talking about getting 82 instead of 81 on your test. This is talking about getting 72 instead of 71. This is talking about getting 53 instead of 52 on your maths test. One percentage point. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't quite know. But they're saying basically the better education you have, the more likely you are to be productive. I think we can agree in general that that's the case. But they go on to say, and this is the important point, how do you determine if someone's going to increase their achievement? In Australia, one of those determinants is how rich your parents are. It's not how smart you are. It's not whether you're a girl or a boy. It's not whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. It's not whether your parents value education or don't value education. It's how much money they earn. That is the single biggest determinant. How much money your parents earn in a civilised country like Australia. Well, that's a very good way to produce an aristocracy, isn't it? Or an oligarchy? Oligarchy. Oligar- well, certain, certain, certainly it's, it's anathema to a meritocracy. A meritocracy yes. is where all the people who have the best ability rise to positions of power and responsibility. I don't know. Back I mean, to pre-revolutionary that, France. Actually, when well, you think about it these days, meritocracy sounds a bit like anarchy, doesn't it? I don't even know. Um, look, but this is economic advice from Deloitte's Economics, and they're saying, well, how do you... Well, sorry, they've identified the problem. How do you solve the problem? You solve the problem by not spending education funding on kids that don't need it. How do you do that? You stop funding private schools. Simple. So I just thought I'd put that little bit of economic sort of no-brainer... Common sense. In, economic, e- e- common economic common sense. sense, and I'll be talking a little bit more about... The processes involved, not just making sure all that all the um, all the uh, Australian private schools are defunded, but then what happens in the schools, what happens in the state schools, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit after a little bit more music. But before we go to to talking about those ideas, I really want to get to the one thing I know listeners are interested in, and the one thing I love the best, which is picking out a state school from around the country, which is a great school. Talking about where they get it right, not where they get it wrong, where they get it right in a state school. And today we're going to be talking about a school very close to the home of, of many listeners here and actually very close to our radio station. I'm going to talk about University High after these messages. 
Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Yeah, as I was here on, promising before, here on the Dogs Program, we like to highlight a particular school. And today we're going to go, I don't know, with some low-hanging fruit, with an easy school that's good, and it's University High School in Parkville. Now, for those who don't know, um, University High School is what's called a selective state school, semi-selective, I should say, which means that if you're a smart kid, you can go into what's called their accelerated stream, at University High School, but it also caters for the local area. Now, over the years, and it's rather interesting, um, we'll put it this way, uh, University High has been around for 108 years. Wow. So it's been around for a long time, certainly in the context of Victoria. It was set up, oh, I don't know, in, in 1910, across the road from, from, from the University of Melbourne. Jean? Yes, yes, it was one of the first ones. Um, because uh, you didn't have secondary, the state in secondary education in Victoria until that time. Uh, in that sense, uh, Victoria was much like um, New South Wales that came into secondary education about that time with Peter Bild. And down here you had Frank Tate. And um, I think people forget that um, secondary education for many, well, for over 100 years, was run by the private sector. And this meant that most children didn't get into uh, state, school, state, state secondary education at all. But the um, Department of Education heads board and uh, Tate and others around the country uh, bought it into the secondary, into the secondary field. Mm. And um, I feel very strongly about this because in 1911, my father went on the train because the train was brought to Canterbury in Sydney and was one of the first children who actually got a secondary education who wouldn't have done otherwise. Mm. I think people forget. And this is what the dogs are fighting for, these very basic, very, very basic opportunities for children. Mm. And the um, private schools want to take us back back past the 19th century into the 18th and 17th century, back into an aristocracy. Yeah, because aristocracies work well um, in third world countries. Um, they do. Aristocracies do not work well in, in liberal democracies and, and first world civilised countries. But they work very well if you want a stable and docile population who will perform vast amounts of manual labour and be fundamentally uneducated. I mean, I'm, I'm just, just stating that in the broad historical context. And uh, Australia in 1910 was, n was intent <laughs> in very, very simple and sensible ways about not being a third world country. We were ahead of the world. Indeed. Because uh, the people who came out here after the gold rushes uh, were determined, and they were chartists and they can call them socialists, you can call them what they will, but they were determined that the um, new old world was not going to be replicated here in Australia. And in 1900, we led the world. And ever since, certainly the 1960s, we've been falling back. And that's why the dogs are here fighting for these very, very basic rights in a democracy. 
to make our nation great and give our children opportunities. And all of this comes from the examination of a very small school just across the road from Melbourne University called the University High School in Parkville. Now, it caters for approximately about 1,300 kids, so it's not a small school. And a very, and a proportion, a large proportion of that is a number of children who have done an exam to turn up there because they did well in the exam and they are at the accelerated stream. However, that's not the majority of kids in the school. The majority of kids in the school come from the local area. So who are these kids? Well, they're not poor. <laughs> because um, they're in the North Melbourne inner city area at the moment. So about well, 17% of them are in the lowest half of Australia and about 80, a bit over 80% are actually in the richest half of Australia. And about 60% of these kids going to this state school are in the top quarter of the richest kids in Australia. So if that's the case, and if we know that socioeconomic status is in fact one of the key sort of one of the key indicators of academic performance. You would expect these kids to be doing well, and they do. They are, uh, the, the performances are off the charts for this school. They're not, not up there with McRobb which, and Melbourne High, which are purely selective schools, because University High is only semi-selective, but they're very, very good. Against similar schools, actually. University High, compared to the same socioeconomic profile of a private school, um, basically beats it hands down. It's a very multicultural school. Well, it I was going to say, I was going to absolutely say, has a br- it doesn't have a very broad socioeconomic profile, but it has a very broad cultural profile and a very broad ethnic profile mm. and actually has a genuine commitment to fulfilling and celebrating this diversity. Mm. They don't educate in spite of these things. They educate because of them and around them and with them. So the cultural and ethnic diversity at University High is far more diverse than a corresponding private school, which, of course, is self-selecting. Now, at that school, and I happen to know this because I know a number of graduates at school, they really do value senses of individual worth and achievement. And they actually go through the process of not just educating and reading and writing and arithmetic, but they go through the process of creating individuals who can be productive in society because they have that time and they have those resources. Now, at University High School, how much does all this cost? How much does all these brilliant marks, and they are brilliant marks, certainly in the top 20 in the state every year, just in terms of pure, raw marks and achievements for whatever that means. How much does it cost? How much does it cost me, the taxpayer, because I always want to see what the bill is? Well, educating an average kid in Australia costs around about $14,000 a year. Educating a rich kid costs less because... Because, because of the whole socioeconomic thing. So at the University High School, they are spending around about $12,500 per kid to get these results, which is around about right. It's not too much, not too little. Fair return on investment, if you're one of those people who talks about returns on investments, and sometimes I am. Mm-hmm. So University High School, smack bang almost in the middle of Melbourne, teaching a whole range of very culturally and ethnically and um, diverse. In fact, if you want to come out at University High School, I can tell you right now, it's the place to come out. <laughs> it really is. It's very supportive of, it, of, of various sexualities. Um, people, young children, young children feel very supported in that, in, in, in that environment. It's amazingly culturally diverse. I don't know, there's hundreds of languages spoken there by all the students and indeed some of the teachers. And of course, they have resources. Well, Deloitte should have a look at this school, shouldn't they? This That's is right. real value for money. Absolute real value for money. So, our great state school of the week 
This week is University High School. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Right, welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. You're in the studio with myself, Dale and Jean. Um, Passy Solberg, um, if you're in education, you know this is, but um, to explain it, Passy Solberg set up the Finnish education system in Finland, which for many years was considered to be the model of the best education system in the world. It slipped back in the rankings a bit in the last few years, but really it's still considered a model in terms of Western-style education. In fact, it hasn't really slipped back. Some people have overtaken it. Who's overtaken it? Shanghai, China's overtaken it. Hong Kong's overtaken it. Singapore's overtaken it. So if we're going to look for a model that might apply to an Australian context, I'm not very interested in looking at Shanghai, China in terms of educational models and how to go about things. I am interested in what Passy Solberg has to say. And it's interesting because he's come to live in Australia. He's come here to live and work. And one of the things he wants to talk about is how we do education here in Australia. And he's just been on a, a speaking tour of Australia, and he says he's actually been left heartbroken because he's got down and dirty into what's going into Australia. He's left heartbroken by stories of young children vomiting, crying, losing sleep over doing their NAPLAN tests. About the stringent academic expectations placed upon primary school children by standardised tests. They're going, to, they're going to put this down, according to Birmingham, down to, to even preschoolers. It's Indeed. extraordinary. And he's going, no, 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 he's going, no, 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 stop, stop, take a step back, have a listen to what I've got to say. And this is what he has to say. He says play, play in young people mm. is being squeezed out of Australian schools. As politicians force more stringent academic expectations upon younger and younger children. Playing music. Now, he was the former director general of the Finnish education system and the author of Finnish Lessons 2.0. What can, be, what can the world learn from education change in Finland? And he's considered a leading expert, as I say, on education systems. And that has become the byword for excellence. Now, by now, many of our listeners will know all about Finland education. At the turn of the century, the OECD released its first set of assessments, the PISA assessments, which measured countries on key educational metrics such as writing and reading and stuff like that. To almost everyone's surprise, the strongest performer was not some global superpower like America, but Finland, a country of about 5 million that doesn't introduce its children to school until the age of seven. It requires highly autonomous teachers. To be a teacher in Finland, you have to have a six-year degree. You have to have a master's. And it almost entirely rejects standardised testing of any sort. In fact, you only get tested once you leave school. At no point do you do a test up until that point. Very few, anyway. Now, in recent years, those rankings have begun to slip. So the Finland is now ranked 12th in maths, 5th in science, and 4th in reading. But, as I said before, it hasn't slipped back. Some other countries have learnt to game PISA, something that Australia might want to do. I don't know, but I certainly hope we don't, because just assessing something well doesn't mean you're doing it well. 
Now, of course, he's in Australia. At the end of last year, at the University of New South Wales, he announced that he would join the new Gonski Institute for Education. Now, this Institute for Education is headed by ex-New South Wales Education Minister... Piccoli. Andrea Piccoli. Oh, he was one of the best they've ever had, even though he was a member of the Country Party. He understood... National Party. National Party, He understood that... Um, the country children needed to have public education. This new institute, the Gonski Institute for Education at the University of New South Wales, Jean, you might find mm. this very interesting, mm. has as its core mission to address the wide and growing inequality gap in Australia's education system, particularly in regional and remote parts, there's the Pacoli bit of the country, where disadvantage as is at its highest. But Salzburg also believes that in their pursuit of results, Australian politicians have placed too much emphasis on competition between schools and competition between students, making education as a process too high stakes. He says, and I quote, If the main goal is to raise Australia's children's scores in both PISA tests and NAPLAN tests, more direct instruction has meant that play, even subjects such as the arts, and music are not on the agenda as they used to be. The central pillar of early education in Finland is the late start to schooling. Children receive no formal instruction until they are seven, and the focus of daycare centres is not formal education, but creative play and health and well-being of the student. The emphasis on play is not trivial, so it's not just play for play's sake, but a form of developmental learning. Research has demonstrated that, that play in early stages of development can engage children in the process of learning and studying in New Zealand have found that by the age of 11, there is no difference in reading ability between students who begin formal literacy instruction at age 5 or indeed at age 7. Australian students, of course, start formal schooling earlier and spend longer in the classroom than just about anyone else on the planet. That's one reason the federal government's proposal to introduce mandatory phonics checks for year one students in Australia has actually failed to win Salzburg over. He says, I think what the government in Australia can do instead is before thinking about these sorts of things is to make sure every child has enough time to play before they come to school. Australia has one of the highest required compulsory instruction times for children in the entire world. That's time that kids, including very young kids, are required to be in formal instruction rather than playing and doing their own thing. This is what he has to say about NAPLAN. He says in 2012, the then Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, announced that she wanted Australia to be back in the top five schooling nations in the world for reading science and mathematics by 2025. Her yardstick was PISA, which has frustrated academics and enthralled politicians in equal measure. The current education minister, Simon Birmingham, has been less overtly driven by rankings, but he's still deeply aware of them. When the latest PISA results were released in 2016, he said the results, and I quote, continue to paint a worrying trend about education standards in Australia. It's evidence, Salzberg says, of a system that's too focused on results and that places teachers under too much control. He suggests Australia should look to New Zealand as a guide, where the new government of New Zealand has sought to improve flagging education standards by, get this, this is what they're doing in New Zealand to improve education, they're going to axe the league tables. 
they're paring back on all of their testing and they're handing teachers power in the classroom. Maybe the key for Australia is loosening up a little bit, less top-down control and a bit more professional autonomy for teachers, he says. One way to think about it is maybe you have all these good things, funding, your economy, good teachers, but you're not improving. Maybe the problem is that things are tied up in a system that's not able to be flexible enough for teachers. Maybe there's not enough trust in Australia in good teachers. Part of the problem Salzburg believes is NAPLAN, often criticised by teachers as a way of putting students into league tables and an inaccurate reflection of educational improvements. This year's NAPLAN results found that a decade since testing began, the average reading and numeracy skills in Australia's primary school students has improved only marginally, while their writing skills across the country has gone backwards. Salzburg doesn't doesn't have a problem with standardised testing. He believes every country needs a way to measure students' progress. But the problem is the way the test is conducted and the use of the data as to sort schools as a shopping guide for parents on the MySchool website. He says, and I quote, I see it, as I see it, when a standardised test like NAPLAN becomes high stakes, it's likely to change the purpose of the school and what the teachers do in schools. I've met thousands of teachers in Australia, and whenever I start a conversation about NAPLAN with teachers, they just go bananas. (laughs) They say the whole purpose of what teaching to do is to make sure everyone gets good NAPLAN results. The problem is that whenever standardised tests are running the show, it narrows the curriculum and it kind of changes the whole role and meaning of what's going on in school from generally useful learning into doing things well in two or three subjects only. It often makes teaching and learning very boring when the purpose is to figure out the right answers to a test. He says there's nothing wrong with the test itself, but Australia could probably do with less standardised testing and NAPLAN could be changed to a sample-based rather than census test. Now, he does go on, and I think it's worth sharing this because I think it's fascinating because we're talking about testing and I'm I'm sure I'm thinking, hang on, they're, they're dodging the real issue, but the gap in equity is the problem also. Well, the other side of the whole testing is that it's big business. You've got your Pearsons and others in the world who are using these statistics and this testing of children um, to privatise education in a different way, the contracting out of the evaluation of our students' progress. That that mm. also is what's going on here. That's the elephant in the room as well as the mm. equity issue, Robert. Yeah. Well, Piccoli rather interestingly says, and I'm just going to pick this out, um, he's, he's adamant that he didn't bring Salzburg's Trochea just because he's from Finland. But it's no coincidence that he's looked there rather than other famously high-performing nations such as Singapore. This is Piccoli saying, he says, I don't think Australians want an education system like Singapore's. People it's, come from Singapore yeah. here because it's not as uh, bad as... It's more stressful, it's high pressure, and yeah, they do well in international testing, but I've got two kids of my own and I don't want them going into a system like that. And I have personal experience with the Singaporean education system and it's deeply linked to the culture. I, I was involved in a project that spent millions of dollars to try to make all the kids in Singapore more creative thinkers. Really? And um, it fell down after two years. And you know why? The tiger mums hated it. <laughs> so you're wasting our children's time with all this play. They must get into the test. Because in Singapore, it is high stakes. Because your marks in primary school determine your future within that country. We won't go into that. We will listen to the dogs program, though, on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We're going to pause for a few messages and we'll return after them. 
Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. Yes, well, you've been listening to the Dogs Program and Robert uh, on the, the Finnish system and the gentleman who's come out to help Australia and give us a few home truths. But um, I'd like to nip across to America. And I'm back with the wall of separation between church and state. Uh, and a year of tweeting dangerously, Trump uses Twitter to undermine religious freedom. History likely will remember a lot of things about the first year of Donald Trump's presidency, but one of those things, of course, will be his use of Twitter. I wish Twitter would just make him anonymous or um, apply the same rules to him as they do to other people. Now, he's reportedly tweeted more than 2,600 times in the last year, much to the dismay of many people. And a recent survey conducted by The Economist and research firm YouGov found that 59% of respondents called Trump's use of Twitter inappropriate. But um, there's a search on the Trump Twitter tracking website called trumptwitterarchive.com indicates that some of his most frequent tweet topics have included the news media, the taxes, Russia, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton and another thing called MAGA. But he's also tweeted about issues affecting church-state separation and religious freedom a fair number of times, as well as education. And um, the Americans United website has got examples of all of these. Um, He he says some quite extraordinary things, like... um, He's claiming that the churches are eligible for reimbursements for any services and building loans. And um, this really worries, of course, those in America who do believe in separation of church and state. So I thought you'd be interested in that one. The Americans United for Church and State website is always an interesting one to look at when you are, are seeing what's going on in America. So is the Diana Ravitch Brock. And uh, Diana Ravitch has got some interesting um, material on her blog. The most interesting this week is that a large number of people are contacting her in other ways and saying, we have been blocked from looking at your blog. 
uh, what's going on here, and they're all worried about it. But she tells us that uh, there's some interesting material from Wisconsin where the governor, Scott Walker, and the state legislature have expanded the voucher program, which is a form of state aid to private schools, despite the fact that it's failed in Milwaukee because they point out that to zealots, evidence doesn't matter. In some small communities, the voucher money is subtracted from the local public school to subsidise students already enrolled in the religious schools. So in uh, Wisconsin, they're taking money out of the public school and giving it to the private school because there are children in the private school and they say they should have the same amount of money. Uh, many will see their education impoverished, impoverished to subsidise those who never attended public schools. And others are very fearful that the fabric of community life is going to be injured by this diversion of public dollars and civic support to private schools. Walker, that's the governor, is a favourite of the Koch brothers who are some of the bankers behind the Trump campaign. And um, they are, well, very interesting oligarchs, if you like, the new oligarchs of America. And this may explain uh, Scott Walker's eagerness to destroy the public schools in his state. The Koshers backed him as a candidate for president in 2016, but actually he didn't last very long. But his love of vouchers is destabilising communities across the state. So um, that is an in- interesting piece of information for you. As well as that, there's a new Mexico charter school CEO who has actually stolen public money. When you give public money to private institutions, you are opening the doors to outright corruption. We've seen this in Australia with the Catholic Education Office. And now you, we can see it and the people in America are seeing it with the charter school privatisation movement. <clears throat> and this CEO has been stealing public money for 15 years and got away with it for that long. So how's that for oversight or accountability? However, they've caught up with him uh, after this 15-year period. His name is David Scott Glasrud, and he founded the first, his first school, Southwest Secondary Learning Centre, Interesting, this use of the term learning centre. It's a charter school, a private school, private public school, independent public school, if you like, in America. And he decided, he's been there since December 1999, and since then he's opened an additional three schools. And, but according to his own admission, within a year, he had devised and executed a scheme to defraud. And as the United States Attorney's Office continues in the case against him, he, they claim that he's misrepresented, concealed and omit, omitted material facts and breached duties that he owed to the schools as an administrator and employee. So that's what happens when you give public money to private institutions and fall down on basic accountability. So you've been listening to the Dogs Program and we thank you for allowing us to uh, be in your kitchen or your dining room or your car or wherever it is that you listen to the radio 
and we hope that you'll stay listening to 3CR and be back again at 12 noon next week to listen to the Dogs program. Indeed. If you're interested in anything we've been saying on the program today, you can check us out at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now.